A desperate surgeon. No sign of the four-year-old. An issue. We hold great concerns. Cleo was taken. 18 days of asking, where is Cleo? What's your name, sweetheart? My name is Cleo. Day 13, head of the task force, Rod Wilde, flies into town to examine the crime scene for himself. A lawman with a reputation lands in Carnarvon. Still confident this case can be solved? Uh, Yeah, look, we're really confident. I'm Natalie Bongiolo, and joining us for this episode is the voice of those news clips we've been playing throughout the series, crime reporter Joey Catanzaro from 7 News. Also with us, we've got Kristen Shorten. Joey, welcome to the podcast. We've been hearing your voice throughout the series. On this day in Carnarvon, you were waiting for Rod Wilde as he stepped off the plane. Was there a lot of hype about his arrival? Nat, it was a huge deal. Rod Wilde has this real reputation as a cold case breaker. He's one of the officers who was instrumental in the team which solved the Claremont killing. So when he flew in, it was a bit like the man coming to town, like an old western. And he's brought some real heavy hitters with him. Assistant Commissioner Brad Royce was there. He's not a big bloke, but he's hard as nails, I'll tell you. You wouldn't want to be in an interrogation room with him. And the new senior investigating officer, Flatman, as well. Homicide with a very solid track record. So they're met by the senior detective on the ground, Lane, who was there when the police plane flew in. We already knew that finding Cleo was a priority, but this was the kitchen sink moment. This was when there was no doubt they were going to throw everything at it. It was a real parade of strength, wasn't it? You know, I remember watching those pictures on 7 News and seeing them step off the plane and think, wow, there was an air of expectation about this. Absolutely, definitely. It was powerful. You could could feel it. It was an investigation like no other, and it was being treated like no other investigation. Even as someone who wasn't there on the ground, just looking at those photos of Rod Wilde and Brad Royce out there at the blowholes, those images really did look like something out of a movie. Like, you've got these slick detectives in their suits, like, trampling through these sand dunes and looking around almost like they were looking for clues and looking off into the distance. And all of that really looked like something out of a Hollywood blockbuster. It's a little bit like it, (laughs) to be honest, being there. Joey, you covered the story from the get-go, and I just want you to take us back to when you first heard about the disappearance of a little girl in Carnarvon. What were your thoughts at the time? Honestly, Nat, I was concerned straight away. I thought, this is bad. It's always bad when you hear of a young child going missing. It was a Saturday morning, and the alert came through from police. They were requesting we urgently broadcast details of this missing four-year-old girl. So I picked up the story straight away. And I put my hand up to go to Carnarvon. But at the time, it was decided my offside of Ben Downey would head there first with Nick Marta, our cameraman. They wanted me to stay in Perth for telephone the next day. I get this alert, and I'm pulling together the story for the day. And I call a contact of mine, a veteran police officer, to check a few details. And just before I hang up the phone, I ask him offhandedly, just in case, is this a search or is it an investigation? And he paused... For a very long time, and there's this silence down the phone, and then he says to me, it's both. Mm. And that's the moment that I knew this was different. So I made a few more inquiries, and I waited to see if anything would change. And by that afternoon, behind the scenes, I don't think anyone had any doubt. I'm just going to quickly, if I may, Matt, just read you a text message that I sent to Ben, Mm. who was on the way up there in the car, and the news director, Ray Cooker, uh, for seven years here in Perth. Sent it at 3.48pm on that Saturday, October 16, and it said, at this stage, police aren't ruling out the possibility the four-year-old was abducted. So right from the get-go, we knew this was going to be a big story. 
Wow. So that was really early on when really... That was hours. Yeah. Really. That was, yeah, hours after the alert had gone out, hours after she disappeared from the family tent. And it's interesting because the public were thinking more of this is a little girl that's wandered off. We're thinking that this is a search and not really knowing what's happening behind the scenes in those first minutes. There's a few things I can tell you about that. And part of it, I think, is really having a sense of what it's like. And I know you've touched on this before, Kristen, the blowholes, you know, the sand dunes, the way that it looks. And this is why I think that locals had very little doubt from the get-go as well. It's quite open terrain, except for the sand dunes. It's pretty flat around the campsite. It's pretty rough. It's not easy going. You've got a bit of sand. You've got some thick undergrowth. For a four-year-old to get through that and to get any distance away from the tent, especially if they're dragging a sleeping bag, which was also missing, it's almost impossible. And now, hypothetically speaking, if somehow they manage to get to the water, this four-year-old, the closest point along the coastline is a lagoon. It's incredibly shallow and it's crystal clear. Basically, straight away, police were like, this doesn't stack up. This isn't just a missing girl. There's something else going on here. And the locals knew it too. It was really interesting when a couple of weeks later, police released that timeline. It became very evident what they were really thinking at that point in time. I'm just going to play a little clip. For the first time, WA police are given an in-depth look at their response in the minutes and hours after Cleo Smith's suspected abduction. In your report, Joey, you outlined that timeline. Can you just step us through some of those minutes that were talked about when they finally released that to the public? Absolutely. Look, I'll just quickly say, this is basically a week after what had been an active land search for a missing girl became a criminal investigation. And this is why Rod Wild being there was so important, because he has the guts and, to be honest, the clout to be able to release this level of detail. Not every police officer would have done that. He's basically done a minute-by-minute breakdown, so we (laughs) we probably can't go through all of it. But it's important because it showed how police responded And it also shows that they pretty much did everything right, focusing the public at this stage when there's a lot of rumour and speculation going around and focusing the press on the only real conclusion that can be drawn, that someone had abducted Cleo, that she'd been taken and that she needed to be found. So basically, 6.23am, Ellie, Cleo's mother, calls triple zero, and within seven minutes, police are on their way from Carnarvon. 6.41, there's a second vehicle dispatched, and I think this is very very pivotal to the entire way that the investigation played out. By 7.26, the site's being taped off as a crime scene. We've got friends and family arriving at 8 o'clock to help. By 8.09, there's a local chopper, basically a helicopter that runs tourism venture that's taken off. It's been contracted by police to do a search from the sky. You've got police air wing and volunteer marine rescue on their way. The SES are there basically by 9.25, 9.30. And then we've got detectives sitting down with Cleo's mum, basically from that point forward as well. And they're with it for the rest of the day. Roadblocks being set up, you name it. And then major crime deploying from Perth up to Carnarvon at 11am. I mean, they knew from the get-go that this was going to be massive and they threw everything at it. It's an incredibly rapid response. Okay, let's talk about Rod's visit to Carnarvon. Where did Mm. he go that day? Where did he go first? Who did he speak to? He went to the police station first in Carnarvon, which is really where they were running the investigation out of for the most part. Look, behind the scenes, Rod's visit was partly operational, no doubt, but mostly, I would say primarily, it was to pump up the tyres of the task force Mm. on the ground. He could run it remotely from Perth, 
But he went up there. Some of the officers that were there had been at it for more than a week by this stage. Some had been rotated back. Some had been rotated in. But, look, extremely long days. And, of course, the stakes incredibly high. Little girl's life hanging in the balance. Truthfully, behind the scenes, you know, I, I'm, I'm being told, basically, by, by this stage that Everyone is scraping the bottom of the barrel in terms of what they can do going forward. Rod's there to reassure them that this case could still be cracked. What he wasn't there to do was tell them that Cleo could and would be found alive. Now, I'm going to tell you this. No one wanted to admit it by that stage. But if I was asking behind the scenes, I was being told the same thing pretty much by everyone. It's not looking good. And while everybody, I think, here in WA, Australia, across the world, was all hoping for the best, I think in Carnarvon, police were bracing for the worst. At the same time, his mood still seemed to be upbeat when he was facing those press conferences. He was still talking about being so confident. Yep, and it had to be. And I'm not saying that he wasn't hoping or that any of us were hoping that it ended any way other than the way that it did. There's always a chance. There's always a possibility. But that possibility was growing increasingly slim with every minute that Cleo remained missing. He had to keep that open. Certainly we as the press had to keep reporting that as a possibility because if we didn't, if somebody did know something and they didn't call it in because they thought, what's the point? Well, you'd be kicking yourself, wouldn't you? Yeah, that's right. And Christian, you've spoken a lot about Rod. You know him very well also. And you've sort of said in the past that he's a copper who is very, very thorough, but he also works with his heart. Yeah, absolutely. And he's a very calm, thoughtful, deliberate person, deliberate detective. I did a story on Rod just this week, actually, because he was this week officially promoted to commander of state crime operations, which is a very senior role within WA police, I believe, about the fourth position underneath the police commissioner. And I did speak to some of Rod's colleagues for that story and they had nothing but praise for him attributing his promotion and ascension through the WA police ranks to his hard work and determination. Everyone I speak to who knows Rod describes him as someone who is very supportive and trustive of his people, of the detectives that work underneath him. He is very interested and involved in all of the cases that he oversees but at the same time he's not interfering he lets his people get on with the job he is also someone very calm and thoughtful he doesn't make rash decisions he is very open-minded he is not someone to get tunnel vision and he is definitely just completely dedicated and committed to resolving the crimes and the cases that he works on to get an outcome for the victim's family it may not be the answer or the outcome that people want but to get some sort of resolution and answers in these cases so I'm not surprised that he was remaining very hopeful very optimistic and positive for everyone involved in particular Ellie and Jake. Yeah just listening to you both it sounds like he ticks the boxes for the qualities of a good leader. Joey did he meet with Ellie and Jake in Carnarvon? He did he did they met inside the Carnarvon police station in fact Ellie and Jake were going there quite regularly to meet up with senior detectives he spent some time speaking with them and I've got to reveal something here. From the get-go, police officers who I trusted and respected, Rod among them, Cameron Blaine being another, police officers who'd sat down and spoken with Ellie and Jake all said the same thing. They didn't do it. And I remember there was a lot of speculation at the time, armchair detectives and whatnot online, but these were people that I respected and I trusted. And I'll give you an example. A detective was chatting with me and we were sitting down 
one night and he explained to me how he was working the case. And it was, it was like this. He said to Ellie and Jake, I know you didn't do it, but before I can look at who might have done it, I need to look at and rule out everyone who was in the tent when Cleo vanished. So once we've done that, and only when we've done that, we can expand our investigation beyond the tent. And he told me Ellie and Jake cooperated in full. No hesitation, no reservations. They willingly and literally allowed police to forensically pull apart their lives. I mean, we're talking mm. forensics in the family home several times, and what they found were loving parents who'd gone from terrified to scared to shell-shocked that someone had taken their four-year-old. So the first thing they do is they interview the people who are in the tent and then they turn their attention to the people who are in the area. And I think Rod then went on to tell us there had been a lot of people that they had interviewed who had stayed at the Blowholes campsite. Probably something in the order of about 100 that at least had been sort of picked up in the area. There may have been the Blowholes campsite or passing through or in that sort of area of interest roughly in that time frame. Some had alibis, but some of those alibis, I'm told, weren't necessarily foolproof. It might be, uh, might have been, say, a, a wife saying, yeah, my husband was with me all night. He was sleeping next to me, but, but was he? And, of course, there was that increasing suspicion that there was at least one person who'd been at the campsite who had yet to be identified. Yeah, and Joey, that's the thing as well. Like around this time, Commander Wilde had said that police had interviewed about 100 people who had been staying at the campsite and spoken to all of those people and they were all accounted for. But police still believe that there were others at the campsite who had not come forward to police, had not made themselves known. And Commander Wilde had also said, you know, there's a lot of camping spots up and down that Blowholes Road and that stretch of coast, which there could have been other people camping just a little distance away and whatnot but the other thing is with that particular campground as you would know joey is that it's a very informal loose kind of system of registering to stay there i I understand it's an online booking system and not everyone does book to stay there so there wasn't any sort of accurate record of who had been there that night no no Obviously, and I think it's now a matter of public record that they've looked at or had been looking at things like phone data to sort of see potentially who may or may not have been in the area um, and then cross-referencing that with people who maybe may have interest to it, but maybe, you know, they're on the sex offender registry. But really challenging. I mean, if you've been out there and some listeners I'm sure have, you would know that it's quite remote and you kind of think, well, in some ways it's very difficult for someone to hide, but in the dark, with no electricity, no lights really, no CCTV. I mean, it was very lucky that one of those shacks actually had a camera on it. It didn't actually capture anything other than the audio, but it was incredibly lucky there was even a CCTV camera out there. But the fact that it was dark, it's so remote, they had a window of, what, six hours or something where they could have driven pretty much anywhere and not a camera really to catch them. It was almost like old-school policing, where before every second house has a CCTV camera on it, before there's ways of sort of tracking people digitally. It was extremely challenging. The police had boots on the ground in town and they were heading through the light industrial area and we know that, of course, what they were looking for out there was CCTV footage. There was not a stone unturned. Joey, after Rod had obviously spoken to the parents, he'd been to the police station, he went out to the blowholes. Just describe that for us, what he was doing out there, what they were looking at, what he was looking for. You know... I'm not 100% sure, I'm going to be honest with you. I don't really know, but I feel like 
every time someone flew into town, be that member of the media or another police officer, everyone just sort of, they had to go out there. It was a good 40, 45 minutes to get out there and a good 40, 45 minutes to get back. But it was like you just had to see it and feel it and get a sense of it. And I think Chris, and you know what sort of police officer Rod is, I just feel like that would have been important to him. Yeah, definitely. My understanding was he did just want to lay eyes on the crime scene himself, see the layout, get a feel for it, because, I mean, he's running this massive task force. I mean, there were 140 officers involved. He really needed to know the lay of the land, the terrain, and, yeah, really have experienced it himself to, I guess, be able to lead them effectively. And, Kristen, police around the country, by this stage, they've been appealing to the public for help. They're asking people to be on the lookout for this missing child. What kind of responses were coming in? Yeah, now, by day 13, there'd been more than 200 possible sightings of Cleo reported to police. And, obviously, while none of those 200 had been fruitful, police were still very receptive to those leads and tip-offs. They wanted information to follow up and they were encouraging the public to continue helping by phoning through any information or even suspicion. This was around the time that Commander Wilde flew to Carnarvon and at this stage, a major part of the investigation and focus still revolved around that report of two people seeing a car turn right off Blowholes Road onto North West Coastal Highway towards Carnarvon between 3 and 3.30 on the morning that Cleo vanished. So that was still a major focus and police were certainly still appealing for information about that vehicle as well. And we have in Australia a national missing persons register, but Cleo's not placed on that at this stage two weeks after her disappearance. That's right, yeah. The National Missing Persons Register, which is funded by the federal government through the AFP or the Australian Federal Police, it lists the names of thousands of missing residents. But for a person to be added to that register, they have to be considered a long-term missing person, which means they have to have been missing for at least three months. And even once that threshold's been met, they're not automatically added to that list. That decision is still reserved for the individual state or territory police rather than the AFP. Kristen, as we've talked about at this stage, there's comparisons being drawn between Lindy Chamberlain case and what we're seeing here happening around the commentary on Cleo's disappearance. And then on day 14, Lindy commented publicly. What did she have to say? Yeah, now I think after Cleo went missing, there was this real thirst to find out what Ellie and Jake might have been going through and feeling and experiencing. And it was apparent that there's only a small group of people who have experienced this unique sort of horror that Cleo's parents were going through having their child missing. And one of the people who we assumed would really be able to relate to what Ellie in particular was going through was Lindy Chamberlain. After all, she'd also experienced this specific trauma of having her daughter mysteriously vanish from a tent during a camping trip. For those not familiar with the story, although I'm sure everyone is, more than four decades ago, Lindy's daughter, Azaria, disappeared during a camping trip to Uluru. So back in 1980, a dingo took her nine-week-old daughter from their tent. And there was an event in Launceston at the end of October where Lindy was speaking. It was part of a writers' festival. She said that she was asked during the Q&A session about Cleo's case and she said that while she related to the worry and grief that Cleo's parents were suffering she basically said that was where the similarities ended because each situation is so different she said nobody has exactly the same experience the media want me to comment on what it's like for parents who have a missing child how they would feel but how can I get them to understand that if I don't know the parents I mean to be fair I think Lindy's story with Azaria 
it does have some striking similarities with Cleo's in that their girls did disappear from a tent during a family camping trip. So to be fair, I think it was understandable that people would be seeking comment from Lindy about this, but she said that people ask the most stupid questions like how do you feel Mm. and how can I describe how I feel to you if you've never been through anything like this and that sort of thing. So she really, I guess, didn't like being put in the same basket as every other parent of an abducted child. And she also just spoke more generally about Azaria's disappearance and the subsequent negative media attention she'd received in the wake of Azaria's disappearance. The miscarriage of justice that occurred when she was wrongly jailed over Azaria's death before she was exonerated six years later. But I think that is where another similarity lies in the negative attention that she got. I mean, back then we obviously didn't have social media, so she wasn't being trolled in the way that Ellie and Jake have been, but it was speculated that she was involved in Azaria's disappearance and that she might have been guilty. So I think she actually has lived some of the horror that Ellie and Jake did go through in those first couple of weeks. And Alan Peace in episode two, he does talk about some of those insights into the vitriol and the attack that she endured at the time. And he was saying publicly at the time, I believe she's telling the truth. And he found himself under the most vicious attack because he dared to say that he believed her body language showed that Lindy Chamberlain was telling the truth. Joey, we heard in the press that some of Cleo's friends and families were saying that Ellie and Jake were in hell. You spent all of that time up there. What were friends or relatives saying to you? I mean, they were devastated and they were shocked that this was a couple who they'd put themselves out there not once but twice. Not wanting to. I mean, they're quite shy people from all accounts. They're certainly not seeking attention. They've done it for the right reasons, to try and get attention and to help find Cleo, find the little four-year-old. There were a lot of tears. People who knew them who just would break down and cry. And there were people who were just terrified for Cleo. And all of them were 100% convinced it was not Jake and Ellie. Everyone in town either knew them or knew someone who knew them. They were dead set convinced that she had to have been abducted and we talked about seeing the blowholes campsite and knowing what the area is like. It's just just impossible that she'd gone missing. And for them, knowing Jake and Ellie, it was impossible that they'd done something to hurt their little girl. I think, too, Ellie could have made her social media private and she didn't have to issue all of those public posts on social media and allow herself to be trolled. But she obviously... It was rather, brave. That's she was right. so brave. And she did it and she endured it for her daughter it's incredible exactly so i mean ellie kept her social media profiles public and continued to issue these almost daily pleas for public information and help and messages to cleo and publicizing the one million dollar reward because she so desperately wanted her child home and they weren't the actions of someone who was guilty she wouldn't have been doing that if she was guilty not that i'm an expert on offender behavior but I mean, it just didn't appear as as a mother that that's the kind of thing that she would do if she was involved in the disappearance at all. And as the search ended its 13th day, Ellie made yet another plea for Cleo's safe, safe return. She posted a story to Instagram with a selfie of her and Cleo pleading for people with information to contact police. It said, if you know anything, please call the police. We want our baby home. Ellie also posted the missing persons poster with a picture of Cleo advertising the $1 million reward again for information that would lead to her return. But these sick online trolls just continued to target Ellie and Jake. And while they were flooded with comments 
that were hopeful and supportive. Jake's Facebook page was just a hotbed for trolls who were voicing vile accusations against them, despite users reporting the comments and people trying to have them removed. Some of them remain there for a week. Understandably, the parents are obviously too busy, their daughter's missing, to worry about that kind of thing. But there were people saying things on there like the parents should be subject to a polygraph test to clear their names and accusing them of not looking sad enough during those two televised interviews that you mentioned, Joey, others accusing them of withholding information or suggesting that they had intentionally harmed Cleo or accidentally done so and covered it up. So even Commander Wilde had to address the trolling in the media, blasting these disgusting trolls who had been hounding the family since Cleo's disappearance. He said that the family had been copying some very disgusting behaviour online and he was just at pains to reiterate that the parents were not suspects in the investigation and they had been nothing but helpful. Just imagine for a moment the trauma of that. Coming under heavy fire, your child's missing, you haven't slept a wink in two weeks and in those long nights you're thinking, what can I do? And the only thing you can think of to do is to post and make those pleas. Joey, you also spoke to the caretaker up there and we've spoken to locals about what this campsite was like. It's very loose. It's certainly not a big four. It's very casual and very relaxed. I just want to play a small bit of what he had to say when you asked him a couple of questions. The car left at 3.30, they think, that morning. Did you hear anything or see anything? Mate, no, I probably sound asleep there, mate. Yeah. Yeah. We knew we'd go to bed early, um, get up early, about six or so. Was he just bewildered? Was everyone just scratching their heads? What's what's happened? Yeah, no, absolutely. People in Carnarvon were just, I mean, they were in shock. Most locals there had spent their childhoods growing up at the blowholes, running around, you know. Everyone sort of described it as you'd sort of get out there and the kids would be like, right, see you later. And they wouldn't be back until the sun was down when dinner was cooking. And that's just how it was. There was a real sense that, much like, I guess, back in, we talk about, say, Eric Nicker Cook, the Nightcrawler going and killing people, and that's my understanding is that's when the streetlights started turning on earlier in Perth. For Carnarvon, this was the moment when it lost its innocence. And people said that, literally. We feel like we've lost something. And, yeah, everybody was bewildered. It just didn't make sense. They were waiting for Cleo to just be found. They just couldn't come to terms with the fact this had happened. And like I said... I guess the difference between the people locally and everybody else is that they believed from the outset that somebody had taken her. You could hear the agony. I just want to play another couple of clips of some locals that you spoke to. This story has just absolutely rocked all of Australia and I feel like the community all feels very helpless and they, everyone want, just wants to do something to help. There's a feeling of brokenness in the town. Nothing hurts like this. I served him at 5.30pm at Owls Liquor. Quite possibly there was someone following him. Did you get the sense that maybe people were clutching at straws trying to figure out what on earth could have happened? I think so, but at the same time, I think it was probably a good thing. I mean, I think police were asking people to clutch at straws. That's where the investigation was at. It was, it was, at, it was at straw clutching. Any potential information, any bit of CCTV, they needed anything and everything because there was no smoking gun. There was no solid lead to follow up at that stage. They would have taken anything. And I remember you raised a really interesting point about the sense of urgency, and this is to do with technology, which I hadn't thought about until I saw it. We're just going to play that. It's been almost two weeks since Cleo vanished, and two weeks is often how long CCTV will stay on a hard drive before it's automatically overwritten. 
the window to find what may be a vital clue is closing fast. Yeah, that was an interesting point because we know that the police were investing a lot of time and boots on the ground in terms of trying to collect this CCTV footage from anywhere. And they were. You just don't know. You don't know what might have been on one of those hard drives. Really, there's only a few main streets in town where there are CCTV cameras. There's a high probability, and I think this is what they were thinking, that if someone had taken it, which which appeared they had at that stage, then they might have driven past and the smoking gun could have just been sitting there. Now, they had officers, forensics officers, going and collecting CCTV. I don't think there would have been a CCTV hard drive in town that they didn't end up seizing in the end, but there was that fear. If you missed a camera, you didn't know it was there, and somebody just hadn't thought about it. What if the clue to finding Cleo was there and it was about to be erased? It was terrifying. On day 15, police drone specialists go back out to the blowholes. They're scouring the area again. What were they possibly looking for at that point? This is actually quite grim. So they'd searched the immediate area extremely thoroughly after Cleo vanished. This was the next step. So effectively, Nat, identifying where, in the worst-case scenario the body of a little girl might have been dumped or hidden by an adult Mm. in that region outside that immediate search zone. Now, it's obviously something that publicly they weren't going to talk about and they didn't thankfully have to talk about. It actually never happened, but if Claire had been missing for just one more day, you would have seen officers from the tactical response group, those are our elite officers here in WA, searching that area, I understand, on quad bikes. That was the plan Thankfully, they didn't need to do it. So now we're talking about 15 days, more than 21,000 minutes, and WA police are leaving no stone unturned. In any such operation of this scale, uh, we reach out to police forces not only across Australia but indeed across the world. Did you get any further insights at this point into how international connections could be assisting police here back at home? Look, to be honest, they didn't. (laughs) Um, I remember, I I mean, I certainly broke the story that there'd been offers of help from international agencies like the FBI. But my understanding is that WA police in the end were not at a stage where they thought that they would help make a difference. It was something that was on the table that had been offered. But my understanding was they didn't actually have to take it up in the end. Do you think international agencies in the past will look back at this investigation? 100%. This is going to be a textbook investigation. It'll be used, it'll be looked at thoroughly here and abroad. There's already in policing circles a lot of chatter about this. I would not be surprised if it's already been pulled apart, picked apart and prepared to be put into a textbook. Even just, we talked about the blowholes before and the fact that maybe I think they were looking through the, the fire pits and whatnot, things like that. And I was asking about that because... I think we also covered the possibility that people are hoping for the best, but they're preparing for the worst. That's some worst-case scenario police work. It's pretty smart as well. I mean, it's not... I don't think coincidental that Rod Wilder put on the case because he's the guy who was instrumental in solving the Claremont killing, which was obviously one of our most enduring cold case mysteries here in WA. And with Cleo, he was effectively doing multiple things at the same time in tandem. One was to scoop up everything, every bit of evidence and every statement, every piece of DNA, potentially security footage or the phone records, anything 
that could be analysed and hopefully help find Cleo alive. But I think the other thing to remember is that by this stage, police are quietly behind the scenes very worried that she won't be found alive. And what they're doing proactively was preparing for a cold case. They're gathering evidence that might prove useful a year or 10 years down the track, something that hasn't clicked now but might in a decade or two decades from now if technology or methodology improves. So when you think about all of that and the fact that they didn't actually need an international agency to help them, it does go to show just how incredible it was that Claire was found and that she was found alive by our police force. Fascinating insights. In Episode 7, we'll look further into the investigation in which police are now searching for that one needle in a haystack. Thanks, Joey and Kristen. And if you'd like to read more, head to thewest.com.au forward slash Cleo.